Ezekiel chapter 21. We'll begin there tonight just by way of a quick review, getting us up to speed from where we stopped last week. Ezekiel chapter 21, and as always, if you have trouble finding Ezekiel, look, just open your Bible right up to the middle, and you'll hit Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and just flip to the right. You'll run through Isaiah and Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then you'll hit Ezekiel. Ezekiel 21. And uh, just again, by way of recap, I'd like to just read these opening words of this section uh, once more, and we'll dive in. Would you like to stand with me in honor of of reading of God's word? Ezekiel 21, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem. It's an anonymous sign. And preach against the sanctuaries, prophesy against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, and I will draw my sword from its sheath, and I will cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Because I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked, therefore my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north, and all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword from its sheath. It shall not be sheathed again. Gracious Father, as we come to your word tonight, we will read of many different accounts, many different portrayals of Israel's failure and the discipline of the Lord. May we see in Israel's failure our own, for in Adam all men sinned. May we see in Israel's failure the, the consequence of sinfulness such that no matter the conditions, mankind will always rebel against our good God. And so then may we be reminded of what is necessary, and that's that we are remade from the inside out. It is the only solution to the problem. Help us, Lord, uh, to put the big picture together as we are in the middle of this grand, um, remarkable, but, um, but obscure and strange book of prophecy. Help us, for Christ's sake and for the sake of our witness, our boldness, our purity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Set your face against Jerusalem, Ezekiel. The day of Jerusalem's destruction is at hand. In fact, if you flip over to chapter 24, just real quick, just two pages or so to the right, look at this. Verse 1, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day, 
the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. So, Jerusalem's end is upon them. But the exiles in Babylon were not heeding God's word. They were not receiving it. They were hearing but not hearing. Like Jesus said, hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. It's not that the word isn't being spoken. It's that they're not hearing it and they're not understanding it. They're not taking it in. They were holding on hope holding on to hope that God would punish the Babylonians. They were the wicked idol worshipers. They were holding on to hope that the hired Egyptian army who King Zedekiah has hired at this point, that they would defeat Babylon and set them free, looking for some other source of rescue. But of course, no such thing happened because there is no such thing as some other source of rescue, right? It's, it's one of the grand pictures of all the texts of Scripture right here. They were hoping for something, hoping for something, wishing for something, trusting in someone, except, of course, the, the point of rescue begins with confession and repentance, and so here's Ezekiel, he's, he's, he's almost, he's shouting, he's like banging this drum, repent, confess and repent, confess and repent. And they stood there almost with like shields up, pounding their chests, but I'm innocent, we're innocent, we're innocent. And so the, the whole of the Bible can be summarized in this, friends. Man's biggest problem is that he thinks he's okay. Man's second biggest problem is that he looks for some other source of rescue than that which has been provided for him by God through his son Jesus. He trusts in other things, hopes in other things, whether that's his own works and goodness or some other way. As it has been described, all religions are the same. They're just different paths up the mountain to God. No, they're not. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life, and few find it, Jesus said. But this is man's second greatest problem. He thinks he's okay, or secondly, he trusts in other things and other means to deal with his being not okay. And then finally, the third leg of the stool is that the only way is to acknowledge our sinfulness. It's the only means of rescue. And so here's Ezekiel shouting this message to the exiles in Babylon. The only means of rescue is through repentance. You're not here because you're innocent. You're here because you're guilty. It's probably the way that many evangelists have felt over the years. Especially in a, a Christianized culture. Not a redeemed culture, but a Christianized culture, where everyone thinks they're okay. I grew up right here in the south, I mean a mile down the road. I grew up in church culture. I grew up in the Bible Belt. In my entire life, I never met anyone who wasn't a Christian. I met plenty of people who had no evidence of Christianity, 
in their lives. No fruit, no commitment to church, no purity, right? No sanctification, no concern for the things of God. But they were Christian because their grandpa was a pastor. And they go to church on Easter and Sunday, or on Easter and, and Christmas. I never met a single person who didn't say they weren't a Christian my whole life. And then I went to Southern California to go to Bible college. And I was surrounded by like-minded young people worshiping the Lord and going to Bible classes. This was wonderful. Then I moved into an apartment with my buddies. And we were all getting jobs. Bible college was over. Now what do we do? Well, I guess we got to go to work and pay rent, you know? And we live on the second floor of a, of a two-story apartment building. And below me there were two... It was a couple, a lesbian couple who lived together. And, um, and if you don't know, if you've never seen me working outside in the yard with no shirt, I've got multiple tattoos. Uh, they're all emblematic of my, yeah. <laughs> they're all emblematic of my faith. Um, and, uh, and back when I was in my early 20s, you know, me and Dino, we'd always be wearing no shirt. You know, when you're 20 and young and, you know, you're feeling ripped and, you know, you're, who needs a shirt, you know? What's the point in having all the muscles and then covering them up? And, um, and, and, my, um, and my downstairs neighbors, they would, they would occasionally stop and talk to me and they'd ask me about my tattoos and I would share the gospel with them. And they would say, um, you know what, I, I'm not into that. I'm not into the whole church thing or Christianity, but, you know, you seem normal, you know. And, I've, you know, and we would talk. And I remember how refreshing it was to meet people who were just honest about where they are, as opposed to everyone pretending like they're a Christian but living like the devil. It was refreshing. I did not want to come back here. I never intended to come back here because of that very reason. Of course, the Lord has other plans. But the point is, friends, this is largely our mission field. People who think they are okay and they're looking for any other means to be okay with God except confession and repentance. And yet, here in an obscure part of the Bible in Ezekiel is the story of the gospel. You're not okay, you think you're okay. The only way to be okay is through confession of your sin. Confess and repent. Well, instead of being rescued by God's intervention and disciplining or punishing the Babylonians, instead of the Egyptians rescuing them, instead, Nebuchadnezzar sieged Jerusalem for the third and final time, destroying the walls. The Hebrew people's worst fears came to pass, and the temple was destroyed. And, as Jeremiah said, the land would have its rest. The land would be left largely you know, empty. And so we noted last week um, in the beginning of this section, chapters 21 through 24, uh, that Israel forgot. You know, they forgot. And so the first warning of this passage is that, number one, beware the sin of forgetfulness. We talked about how the whole, you know, sacrificial system was designed to help Israel remember. In fact, we just read, if you're following the reading plan, we just read the Passover, institution of the Passover in Exodus. And literally, word for word, what, it, what God said to Israel in the institution of the Passover was, this will be a memorial for you. 
a memorial. Well, what is a memorial? It's, it's, a, it's a ritual or a day or even a, a pillar, you know, a statue, a, a heap of rocks. That was a, it was a reminder. So memorials were days, like the Passover, to remember how God rescued them. In other places in the Old Testament, God says, take a big pile of stones and stack them up here by this riverbank so that generations from now, when your children ask you, Dad, what's up with the big pile of rocks? This is not natural. Okay, this didn't happen. All right, this, somebody put these here. Then you would say, this is when God did this. This is when God rescued us. This is when God intervened miraculously. It's a memorial. It's all about remembering. And Israel, they just forgot. And it's a a potential that all of us can fall into. We can become sort of numb and comfortable with the scriptures. But you know what I find? The more I read them, the less comfortable they make me. (laughs) Like the Holy Spirit is is always... um, in the best of ways, this is not a good analogy, but in the best of ways, like a nagging wife, right? Who can always find something, you know, that you're not, you know what I mean? You're not quite, not quite, it's like once you conquer 18 mountains, you think, man, I'm getting this marriage thing. And it's like, nope, here's 18 more places that you're just not, you know. Now, my wife is not like that, but I mean, that's what it would, I imagine, would feel like. In the best of ways, that's what the scriptures do. I don't become comfortable the longer I'm in them I become more uncomfortable it's as the Puritans would say the closer you get to the light you know the more it exposes your darkness and and so but we can we can become a little bit familiar with the stories and begin to skim them and uh, and just forget forget about the grandness of our sin the grandness of the sacrifice that was required because we're so sinful, no less than God incarnating the flesh of man and taking the beatings and the mockery of man and pouring his holy, precious, perfect blood out on the cross of crucifixion, nothing less would suffice. That's how dirty and rotten our hearts are. That's what was required. That doesn't make me comfortable, friends. (laughs) So beware the sin, the, the sin of forgetfulness. And then as we turn the page into chapter 22, we noted beware of the allure of sin. One of the, one of the continual problems with Israel was that they were, they were lured into the, the pagan idol worship practices. And these included feasts and physical pleasures of various types that are forbidden, that are not helpful or healthy, And of course, they're sinful. They were drawn into international alliances that would um, would benefit them nationally, but they would harm them spiritually. I was just speaking with with Dana and Miss Jolie about the, the horses. Solomon accumulated horses for himself. And they had quite the horse army, cavalry and chariots, and that would go on, king after king, trading and having a... But clearly, at the, at the inception of Israel as a nation, God said, you shall not multiply horses. 
And then he goes on to explain why. Well, because your strength is not in your Calvary. I mean, Calvary, they were the, they were the tanks. They were the Abram tanks of the day. If you had horses in battle, you had a strong advantage. So, so God says, don't multiply horses. You're not to have a big horse Calvary. I, I will fight for you. Just trust me. But the allure of independent strength was too strong. The allure of sinful practice with idol worship was too strong. The allure of sin is real and the pleasure of sin is real, but it's temporary. And so he spoke last week about being, a, being aware and alert to the allure of sin. But this is where we stopped. We also ought not as we consider the allure of sin, we ought, also ought to be careful that we, that we cease distinguishing good from evil. That's a temptation. It's a temptation for the people of God to, um, to go soft on making a distinction between good and evil. Now, this is, this is not an incredibly insightful statement. In fact, all you have to do is follow the headlines of what's happening in mainline denominations, right? Priests and pastors and denominations and affiliations releasing statements, right? When you have a church that is hosting drag queens in the pulpit with the pride flag in the corner, what have they done? They have ceased distinguishing between good and evil. It's a temptation. Um, it, uh, a, um, a very insightful young man, um, he said, and I'm, try, let me get the, I'm trying to get it right, so this is me trying to recall this correctly. Progressive Christians, want to be thought well of by the world. They have received their reward. Right? They've received their reward now. Here and now. But what did Jesus say? Store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy them. See, progressive Christianity seeks to stop distinguishing between good and evil in order to be accepted and loved by the world. And they receive that reward and they're thought well of here and now, but they're drinking judgment in eternity. And this is what we see in the next group of verses, beginning in verse 26. Chapter 22, verse 26. God says her priests, that's Israel as a nation, her priests have done violence to my law. That's strong, isn't it? And have profaned my holy things. And you say, well, how so? Answer, next phrase, they have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. It's a three-part sermon right there in one verse. My kids at night go, oh boy, here we go, Dad. 
So look at it. There's, three, there's multiple things happening. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. All right? So there's, there's distinguishing what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is holy and what is common. Then there's the teaching, right? That's what a doctrine is. A doctrine is a settled and proliferated teaching. So now the, the doctrine, the teaching of the priests, they taught neither the difference between the unclean and the clean. That's the second part. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths. All the stoppages. What stoppages? Well, the weekly stoppages and the yearly stoppages. No planting on the seventh year, no harvesting in the fields. Let grow what will grow. You can go out there and you can collect a little bit, but I'll give you a bumper crop on year six so that on year seven you'll have more than you need to eat and you'll live off of the bumper crop of year six through year seven and into year eight until the first harvest comes up. The poor among you can plant in the corners of your fields as a welfare system and whatever grows naturally in your fields, it'll be food for the animals and for man, but let the land rest. And they didn't. And so it's, it's fascinating that it's 70 years of captivity, one year for every Sabbath rest the land did not receive. And when you calculate that out, it's, it's something like 490 years. So for five centuries, Israel did not obey the Sabbaths. Now, that's 500 years. Israel was in the land for 400 years during the period of the judges. And then for roughly 300 more years, Israel had kings before the Assyrians invaded. So we're up to roughly 600 years. 200 more years, we're up to 800 years. Right? and the Babylonian invasion. So really Israel is only in the land prior to the invasion but for 600 years in the north and for 800 years in the south. But you're telling me that for 500 of those years the Sabbath rest of the land was completely ignored? Five out of eight? Five out of six? You see the calculation that we're doing here together, friends? The overwhelming majority of the time, Israel lived in the promised land. They neglected one of the most basic components of their instruction. Let the land lay fallow for the seventh year. But the overwhelming majority of the time, they ignored my Sabbath. They disregarded them. What was the result at the end of verse 26? I am profaned among them. Now, I do all that exercise just to come back to this starting point. They, what's the first starting point? They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. That's where it started. Did God really say, don't eat of the tree? It looks good. Eve saw it looked good for food. You stop making a distinction between good and evil and look at the tumbling ramifications. It begins at, it's not so bad. And it ends at, 
the name of God is profaned among his people. That's scary. It's not, is it really that big of a deal? Friends, that's where we have to be committed to saying, yes, sin is a big deal. A little bit of sin is a big deal. Jesus said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A tiny sprinkle of yeast. It infects the whole thing. This is why in, in the third week of the love series on Sunday, the specifics of love, Paul talks about leaving no room for the fleshly desires. Leaving no room. And I heard a pastor, I'm probably ruining one of my best illustrations uh, for two Sundays from now, but only you know 50 or so of you, 40 or so of you are gonna know it. So anyway, you'll hear it twice, probably. Uh, he compared this to warfare. And he said, um, you, you gotta imagine the, 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 the fleshly carnal desires that are, that are inherent in us. They're clinging to us. We're redeemed from the inside out, but we're still cloaked with this body of death, as Paul calls it. We're at war against this thing. And when you're at war, you don't want to send your enemy a lifeline to keep him going. What, are you going to give him a little bit of this and a little bit of rations and a little bit of ammo and a little bit of grenades and then try to pretend like you're on, you're, yeah, we're going to win, we're, gonna, we're on an all-out assault. No, you're not. You're kind of like, you're helping keep him alive. This is what Paul says. Leave no provision. Leave no room. Don't feed. Don't help. Not even a little bit. When we cease to distinguish between good and evil, when we are unwilling to call sin, sin, when we're willing to tolerate a little sin among our church family, because that's ah, not that big of a deal. We're just feeding the enemy, arming the enemy. And the progression from verse 26 is that it ends up with the profaning of the Lord among his people. This is why there are two things that I pray for Hillcrest most regularly. You guys, maybe, wanna, maybe you can quote them because I've shared this. I pray we'd be unified, right? Because divisions in the church are only helpful when they are, they are the divisions between truth and error. But I also pray that we would be what? Anybody know? Pure. This is the two things I pray for Hillcrest the most often. If I have 10 seconds to pray for our church, this is what I pray for. Make us pure and make us unified. Keep us pure, keep us unified. Leave no room. Never cease to distinguish between good and evil. The ramifications are horrendous. As we move into chapter 23, we move into a, a challenging metaphor and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to just point out a couple of key verses for you as you perhaps take this in. Some of the language is quite strong, in fact, to the point that I'm not even comfortable reading it in front of a mixed audience. Not audience, you're not an audience, I'm not doing a performance. You get what I mean. But let's just get a flavor for it. Chapter 23 is a metaphor. Two sisters, Ahala and Ahalibah, And they represent the capitals of the two countries 
Israel to the north, the capital of Samaria, and Judah to the south with the capital of Jerusalem. Israel to the north is the older sister because she embraced idolatry and international alliances earlier than Judah to the south. And so because she embraced these things sooner, it's almost like her that nation's sin was birthed first. So she's the older sister in the metaphor. But then Judah would come after her and, as we'll see in a moment, uh, embrace her wickedness and then some. So let's just read a few bits of the metaphor to help you clear it up. And then we're actually going to move on to um, one of the more challenging bits for the second half of tonight's lesson. The word of the Lord came to me, verse, verse 1 of chapter 23. Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. And so on. Two unfaithful sisters. Verse 3 and 4 describe Israel. You go down to chapter 11. Her sister, or verse 11, her sister Aholibah saw this and she became more corrupt than her sister. That's Judah, the younger sister. Verse 22, therefore, O Aholibah, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will stir up against you your lovers from whom you turned in disgust and I will bring them against you from every side. What is that? It's the Babylonian invasion of Judah. Verse 36, the Lord said to me, son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholibah? Declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery and the blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery and they even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. Literally, this is a reference to child sacrifice to the god Molech. It's a summary statement. Uh, remember back in chapter 16? It's all about how God gave birth to this nation. And he salted the nation. That's what they used to do to babies. They didn't have uh, the same antiseptics, and so they would salt the babies. Uh, salt is a powerful antiseptic. God says, I salted you like a baby, and then, I, and then I married you. I put the marriage clothes on you and the ring on your finger, and, and then you, you cast me off and you chased after other lovers. And here it's the same message. You left the God who birthed you, who gave birth to you, out of nothing, out of Abraham and Sarah's barrenness, God birthed this nation. And in love, God took this nation and rescued her from Egypt where she was abused and enslaved and made her, if you will, his bride. And this is a common theme in Old Testament language that Israel is the bride to God. You can see Jeremiah 2 and 3 and also Hosea 1 through 3 to reinforce this picture. And so what does God do? God says, okay, I'll bring, I'll bring those who you went after up against you. I'll use them to punish you. 
And really, friends, this is again this refrain. At the end of the day, this is all about God doing what he must in order to deal with sin so that he can redeem. It might be the, you know, the, the tagline, the book of Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart. A more robust tagline would probably be, God does what is necessary to deal with sin so that he can redeem. It's like the whole thing. A parent who takes their child and, and gives them a spanking, you know, we inflict pain on their body. One of the parenting tips, by the way, moms and dads, when you gotta give your kid a spanking, you know, there they are, and you know, the spanking is delivered. You keep them down, and you say, okay, now, why did this happen? And you, and you require them to tell you while they're in their humiliating position of submission. This is, this is why I got this spanking. When the parent is doing this, it's not to crush. It's to confront sin because the only way back is to confess your sin. This is what God's doing with Israel. He's holding them down and saying, okay, why are we here? Why did this happen? Confess your sin and be restored. And then I'll give you a new heart. (laughs) Right? Chapter 24, the day is here. It's D-Day. The allied invasion of the beaches of Normandy. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, verse one, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. The wickedness of the people wasn't hidden, they weren't ashamed. Look at verse seven. For the blood she has shed in her midst, she put it on the bare rock, and she didn't, she didn't even pour it on the ground to cover it with dust. This is the idea. You didn't even try to hide your sinfulness. You did it wide open, right out in the open for all to see. You weren't even trying. You didn't have a guilty enough conscience to try to hide your sin from me. You put it bare on the top of the rock. That's the imagery being painted there. Meaning there was not even any shame. And so God's display of judgment will be similarly public and obvious, and it was. The pile of rubble that the city becomes will be a witness to God's holiness. You did your sin brazenly and open, I will bring you low, and it will be open for all to see. In this whole section in chapter 24, these opening 14 verses, I read a great sadness in the tone of God's discipline. And any parent who has disciplined a child knows this sadness. It's a necessary, you know, punishment, inflicting of, 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 of heartache and pain. God says, this was necessary, I have promised it, your sin has earned it, but I don't look forward to it. It must be done, so it will be done. Now, without getting hung up on that, one of the great lessons from this section comes in the next bit. Beginning in verse 15, let's read it together. 
The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, behold, verse 15, so 16 now, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Who's that? Who's the delight of his eyes? It's his wife. Yet you shall not weep or mourn. Verse 17, sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban. What would they normally do? Take the hat off, put the what? Ashes on the head. God says, nope, keep your hat on. Bind your turban. Put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips. Apparently, historically, they would actually, um, they would cover their, their mouths so that people could not see them uh, with quivering lips. It was one of these cultural things that you would do when you're mourning. You'd cover your mouth. And God says, don't cover your mouth. Not only should you not cover your mouth, but you should not have quivering lips, nor eat the bread of men. And so I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died, and on the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us that you are acting thus? He's acting so strangely, they're going, why are you acting this way? Where's the ashes? Where's the sackcloth? Where's the mourning? Where's the weeping? Jesus is said that he wept loudly at Lazarus' death. Why? Because this was the common cultural expression of grief and anguish. And they're going, you should be in a, in a pile of ashes. Why are you going about as business, with business as usual? Why are you acting this way? This was so strange, it would cause them to ask. This is like what Peter said. Always be prepared to defend the hope that you have. Now, our hope should be so great that unredeemed people are going, What's, wh- why are you acting this way? And the people said to me, verse 19, will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you're acting thus? And then I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will, I will profane my own sanctuary, the pride of your power. Remember at the beginning when I said the, the Hebrew people's worst nightmare came to pass? The temple was destroyed. The pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. So there was three bewares here, friends. Beware of the sin of forgetfulness. Beware the allure of sin. And then finally, number three, beware of emotions that, af- that interfere. Beware emotions that interfere. Ezekiel had a job to do. He had a calling. He had instructions from the Lord. And his emotions would interfere with his obedience. If they were not put under the control of his obedience to the Lord, his emotions would interfere. 
the Lord asks him to do something that's hard. I mean, it's, it's inexpressibly hard. Do not mourn the passing of your spouse? Are you kidding me? Revelation 16, 5, I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. True and just are your judgments. And consider Job and all of his troubles. He stayed true to his faith that God is good and just. It's only in the end, when his emotions got the better of him, did he stumble. Uh, in between my son Pate and my son Jake being born, Leslie and I had several miscarriages. We thought, well, that's it, we'll adopt. You know, that was all of was our plan anyway. Um, when the Lord stopped giving us biological children, we'll adopt some, some babies and have a big family anyway. Um, but the worst one was, was when um, the, baby, the baby got to eight weeks and then 12 weeks, and that's when they say the odds of miscarriage really drop. And so we were so overjoyed. And so we, you know, we're doing all the announcements and online, Facebook and friends, and, and she's showing and... And then week 14 and 15, 16 come around and Leslie goes, something's not right. And I go, well, let's go in. About a week later, there we are at the hospital and she says, yeah, the baby's gone. Well, we've had miscarriages before and okay, you know. But she said, no, th- in this case, you actually have to deliver. We have to induce labor. You have to deliver this little baby. Um, but, I, um, but I also knew that, uh, that I was a pastor and that people were watching me. They were watching how I was going to live through this sadness. And so the only thing I said publicly, you know, at the announcement that, you know, we've lost the baby, we love you, thank you for your support and prayers, you know. I just said what Job said you know, in Job 1. You know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And why, what would compel me to do that? We've we got to beware of emotions that interfere. I mean, there's a bigger thing at stake here. There's a bigger goal at play. Is it normal to mourn? Of course it is. And, and look, friends, my, uh, our, our sadness is but a drop in the bucket compared to some of the sadness that has been experienced just by the folks in this room not to mention the broader Christian community. So ours is, is slight. You know? But what was our responsibility? Our responsibility was to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You know? Because people are watching. The unredeemed are watching. Our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ are watching. I'm a pastor. People are watching. How do you handle disappointment? In life's greatest disappointments and pains, the mature faith requires himself or herself to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
not only do we see this with Job and we see this with the just and true judgments of God in Revelation and here Ezekiel not being allowed to mourn his wife but Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron and his sons in their sinfulness they were killed by the holy righteous fire of God and Aaron was instructed by God do not mourn your sons. Why? Everyone's watching and there is something more important at stake than your emotions. Friends, this is an important lesson that we, uh, we have got to be confronted by. When God judges and destroys this nation, America, for our wickedness, for our forgetfulness, for our idolatry, the Christian community ought not mourn. We ought not wail at the destruction of a once godly nation with grand promise who has long turned their backs on God. As we watch liberalism and self-worship destroy the culture, the economy, the global influence for good that once was an American mainstay, we should keep our hats on, keep on preaching Christ crucified. And do not be found among those who are astonished or bewildered or shocked or mourning. Why would we be? Are you kidding me? Are you seeing the laws that are being passed? God raises up and he lowers down. He gives and he takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We do not want to be found mourning God's discipline. God's discipline is our joy. Instead, let us be like Ezekiel, steadfast and faithful through highs and lows, through challenges and disappointments. There is more at stake than your emotions. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The discipline of the Lord is good. Let's consider these words in closing from Spurgeon. He speaks of the pleasing company, if you will, of the discipline of the Lord. He says, It is pleasant to pass over a country after a storm has spent itself. You know that, right? You recognize, you, you relate to that immediately, don't you? That, that he says, To smell the freshness of the herbs after the rain has passed away and to note the drops while they glisten like purest diamonds in the sunlight. Spurgeon can paint a picture, can he? That's the position of the Christian, Spurgeon says. He is going through a land where the storm has spent itself upon his Savior's head. And if there be a few drops of sorrow falling, they distill from clouds of mercy And Jesus cheers him by the assurance that they are not for his destruction. But how terrible it is to witness the approach of a tempest. Right, that's a a scary, ominous storm. To note the forewarnings of the storm. To mark the birds of heaven as they droop their wings to see the cattle as they lay their heads low in terror, to discern the face of the sky as it grows black and to find the sun obscured 
and the heavens angry and frowning. How terrible to await the dread advance of a hurricane, to wait in terrible apprehension till the wind rushes forth in fury, tearing up trees from their roots, forcing rocks from their pedestals, and hurling down all the dwelling places of man. And yet, sinner, this is your present position. Not the redeemed, but the sinner. This is your present position. No hot drops have fallen as of yet, but a shower of fire is coming. No terrible winds howl around you, but God's tempest is gathering its dread artillery. So far the water floods are dammed up by mercy, but the floodgates will soon be opened. The thunderbolts of God are still in his storehouse. The tempest is coming. And how awful will that moment be when God, robed in vengeance, shall march forth in fury. Where, 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 O sinner, will you hide your head? Or where will you run to? May the hand of mercy lead you now to Christ. He has freely set the gospel before you. His pierced side is the place of shelter. You know your need of him. Believe in him. Cast yourself upon him. And then the fury shall be passed forever. Now you see, friends, the righteous fury of the Lord is our comfort. Firstly, because it was poured out on Christ and we are hidden in him. Secondly, because his rod and his staff comforts us. We need not fear nor be bewildered at the action of God. He pours his wrath out on his son to save us, and he pours out his judgment on the world, well, in part to get their attention that they too might be redeemed. The book of Ezekiel has a lot of this in it, right? There's been a lot of this doom and gloom and, you know, repent and, you know. It can be easy to kind of get lost in it unless we see it for what it is. And so therefore, friends, when the discipline of the Lord is upon you, remember that there is more at stake than your comfort. When the suffering of this world is upon you, Remember that there is more at stake than your emotions. And when we witness the fury of God's wrath poured out, let us remember that it was first poured out on his son to save us. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word in the book of Ezekiel. A remarkably complex and fascinating um, book of metaphors and stories compelling us to consider the the gravity of sin and the price that was required to cover it. Now give us perspective in these days. Let us see clearly uh, what you're doing. And when we do not see clearly, help us to trust you. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray all these things. Amen. Good night.